Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Serene Team. Serene Team is one of Psyche Truth's newest web and phone applications that is all about helping you find relaxation, de-stress, reduce anxiety, and improve your overall sleep. So there's hundreds of different video and audio tools that help you do that, and it's a really, really powerful and helpful online tool that that can do a lot for you so definitely go check out serene team you can start a 14-day free trial and see how you like it and see if it works for you we are also brought to you by yoga plus yoga plus is psyche truth's premier yoga application it's a phone app so you can bring yoga with you wherever you go you never have to worry about where's the nearest yoga studio or anything like that you can just do yoga anywhere you want it's awesome there's hundreds and hundreds of different yoga videos with a wide variety of instructors so you still get a lot of variety there there's 30-day comprehensive series there's 14-day series there's one-hour yoga videos it's got everything you need to build strength improve flexibility whatever you want so definitely go start your free trial for yoga plus and check it out today's guest is dr daniel hockman dr daniel is board certified in general adult psychiatry and so he works mostly with addiction patients and in rehab centers. Um, he's all about helping people obviously get away from their addiction problems and find ways to really live a happy, healthy life. So we had Daniel come on and talk all about what addiction even is, why people tend to lean towards addiction for whatever reason, what causes addiction to come about, and how you can how you can get past it and still actually live a, a great life after you know struggling with addiction. And so super, super interesting conversation. Daniel had a lot of really good insight on this topic that I think is really, really important. Um, he also talked about what to do if maybe you don't struggle with addiction, but you know someone, either a loved one or a good friend or family member, who maybe is starting to struggle with addiction. He talks all about some of the best ways to approach them and address it without without having a negative uh, negative conversation and really kind of leading them to push you away further. So really, really important conversation here. I think you guys, there's a lot to learn from this. Um, Daniel is also the founder of selfrecovery.org, which is his online portal where he basically has tons of video tools to help people that might be dealing with addiction um, themselves, but they, they just don't want to go see someone about it. Maybe they, they need to kind of handle these issues in the comfort of their own home before they, you know, it prevents them from being able to put up any kind of wall because it's just doing it for themselves. So it was a pretty interesting thing. So definitely go check out selfrecovery.org as well because Daniel talks about that in this episode as well. Uh, so yeah, enjoy the show. Uh, please make sure to leave us a review. Leaving us a review is a huge help um, and it just really helps us know how we're doing. So yeah, enjoy the show guys. So I'm really, really excited. Thank you very much, Dr. Daniel, for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so just kind of starting off, I know addiction is kind of our probably the biggest thing we're going to hit today. Um, and I think it's something that probably, would you would you say it's pretty misunderstood in, in, in our culture right now? Very, yeah, right? very misunderstood. Why, why, why do you think that is? Like, what, what is misunderstood about addiction? 
Uh, historically and then still today, people think of addiction as just this this huge, grave problem. So um, one of the biggest issues is just nobody wants to, to ever talk about having it. So it, it sort of stunts the discussion. You know, people will talk about their phones or their clothes or where they travel. You know, there's nothing stunting a healthy discussion and evolution of that. Um, but we're all stunted talking about mental illness and addiction, especially just because there's a ton of stigma. No one wants to talk about having it or having a kid with it. Um, and so, uh, you know, those are usually conversations that happen privately. And then when they do happen, um, usually people are just incredibly misinformed. Mm. And when it comes to behavioral health stuff, um, people just have usually no clue really what causes what they're seeing. You know, they're so confused if it's genetic, societal, or some chemical imbalance, and, and people just come out with all their own sorts of ideas, and then and then that only worsens this already stunted discussion. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so, so kind of like you were saying, there's so many different, I guess, sources or causes that seem to potentially lead to to addiction problems. Um, would you say normally it's it's more of just kind of a combination of multiple contributing factors? Almost always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- one of the ideas that you know was was put out there more sort of like you know last decade, a couple decades ago is. You, you go and use a substance and then you're hooked. Mm-hmm. So it's just this idea of exposure to an addictive chemical and then it sort of takes over and that does its thing. And then you get only more addicted to that, which only leads to more addiction. Um, meanwhile, you're losing other connections and other healthy habits. Um, that That's sort of true. It's not that that isn't true, but that's not all that's happening. So to get to what you're saying, I mean, that's it, it would be so overly simplistic to, to make addiction about that. And a good example of, I mean, it's got to do with so many other things than, than just getting hooked on a chemical. Yeah. 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 Cause I feel like, especially growing up, I mean, with, you know, I remember being in elementary school, middle school, high school, all that. And they had like dare program. I remember the dare program, like n- telling you don't do drugs and oh, all yeah. that. Cause you're going to get addicted <laughs> and become, you know, and die and all that. Um, and, Kind of like you're saying, while while there is, I think, some truth to you, you have this chemical that your body kind of gets reacted to and hooks onto a little bit. I, I think it's definitely kind of an overshot to say something is in, enters your body one time and all of a sudden you're like, you can't live without it kind of thing. There's got to be a lot, a lot more going on in that whole scenario than simply just a chemical reaction that gets you hooked onto this this drug right exactly i mean i i remember the same thing you know we had the dare program in my schools and um they'd have you know people that had severe addictions come and talk to us and and um i i, I remember being scared oh if i use something once i'm gonna be hooked and i could be that guy and that was the message being told um and, and it's just so incredibly untrue and that was a lot of that was driven by nancy reagan um, so that was going on, you know, all throughout the eighties and, um, she meant well, uh, I mean, it was, it was really good that she was focusing on addiction, but it was just not informed by science. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't set that kid up, um, you know, in middle school or you know, high school who's starting to get exposed to drugs, alcohol, it doesn't set them up to know what to do in that situation. You know, it's the just say no campaign. So, you know, 
people think just say no, but what do you do when it's your friend or a cool kid or you're really stressed out or you don't know, you know how to behave socially? Um, it's not so easy then to just say no. I mean, they, they totally skipped over all the things that contribute to it, the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why, you know, w- when I say that stuff doesn't work and it misses the mark, um, that's based on evidence. I mean, we have gone back and studied what the Just Say No campaign has done, and it's done nothing. I mean, it really hasn't. There's been about a half a dozen studies, and none of them show that it was helpful. So I mean, this is this is already proven to not be helpful. Um, you can say just say no as much as you can say eat healthy, mm-hmm. exercise, and go to bed on time. So it, it only goes so far. Right, right. Are they starting to kind of change their tactics, or I guess not tactics, but like the idea behind the don't or just say no campaign and what they're are they shifting to anything else uh, i don't i don't think there's a real coordinated effort really to do that um part of that is because i still see the the larger community including professional organizations not quite getting it right mm-hmm. um you know, the the governmental bodies we have studying addiction like nida um we still are a little bit off on how we describe addiction um, I wouldn't even say off. It's just it doesn't actually allow for the complexity that you know that contributes to the actual behavior. Right. Um, so it's still talking about it as just this substance-related thing that people get hooked on. Um, so we've kind of gotten away from the "just say no" and "dare" campaigns, but um, but we haven't really found any new message that that people have gone towards. Okay. Um, and yeah, that actually kind of makes me think. Because when when people talk about addiction, it's often initially at least associated with substance abuse, some kind of drug. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a whole other category of like behavioral addiction, right? So like yeah. with like sex addiction, or there's tons of different behaviors, or there's people that are addicted to like isn't uh, what's the there's a actual word for it, but like to stealing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. So shoplifting, you know, yeah. and, and shopping itself, you know can be that way shoplifting is is more of sort of its own specific disorder but um but yeah what you're referring to are called process addictions that's the fancy word for these behavioral ones um so yeah there's chemicals and alcohol where you can get addicted you know to an actual substance of some sort um, but a behavior of course is not a substance it's an act and some of those acts are are you know easily understood as bad so gambling Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, video gaming, things that aren't necessarily constructive. So e- even if we don't call them bad, we could just say they're not constructive. Um, but there are other types of addictions like sex where it gets dicey because, well, it's healthy to have sex. Um, so, you know, it's healthy to use some Internet. It's healthy to um, go shopping. Um, but those things can all get out of hand. Mm-hmm. So the trickiness with those process addictions are that, you know, usually they deal with behaviors that verge on healthy, and it's just a question of amount. Um, you could argue the same thing potentially about alcohol. Um, it's it's a debated issue, although probably having a drink a night is either not harmful or even healthy. Um, but still, it's pretty easy to just say, you know, you can do without substances. 
Um, but the other behavioral things, yeah, you, you can't do without. Mm-hmm. It, it challenges the way you think about addiction. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, you can even see it. I know for sure I've seen people with like even exercise addictions mm-hmm. where people definitely get addicted to exercising. Yeah. Exercise and work. Mm-hmm. I mean, pick the, you know, pick those two, add sex in there. Yeah. You know, to, to have a healthy sex life, go to work and exercise well, you know, that that would be considered a, a very healthy life. Um, but you get carried away with any of them and it's an addiction. And mm-hmm. then people get very confused then um, about, you know, when that crosses the line. Um, do you measure the amount or, or what? And, um, and then you can see, too, w- what I see happen when I talk about um, underlying addictive processes is that a lot of people who struggle with what they, you know, would say more, a, a more serious addiction. So say, you know, severe alcoholic or a heroin abuser. Um, they get very offended sometimes that you're talking about addiction um, to those in the same breath as sugar or porn, huh. um, because it's you know, d- you know, to them they could die on the next hit, right? Or the, or their sister could. Um, but you're talking about porn, and, and they they find it very dismissive, you know, that you're that you're talking about it all in the same breath. Um, and again, it comes back to this very stunted discussion about addiction because what if for example we're trying to talk about it um, in the broader sense and understand you know how people relate to using things to regulate themselves and some of the people check out of that discussion altogether or reject it or, or protest the discussion because you know they're they reject the idea um, to talk about addiction in these broader ways mm-hmm yeah, and so that's that's actually super interesting as well that you talk about the the kind of more substance addicted group that gets upset about mm-hmm. the process addicted group, or even like if you're addicted to sugar, something that I guess would would appear less lethal, right? Um, and and they feel almost taken back that it's that it's grouped together. That's strange, right? And this could happen in any area. You yeah. could say, don't be mean. You know, and some mean people are using guns mm-hmm. and some mean people are right. just, you know, glaring at people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, none of these are to make a statement that, you know, someone's worse or, or more sort of, um, you know, um, sick or other things. You know, it, it's it's just to talk about the process so people can understand it correctly. You know, so again, if you're going to talk about being mean or being evil, um, you know, let let a healthy, full discussion in. You know, don't only talk about evil with guns. Mm. So same thing here. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it would be wrong to me to only talk about addiction to the most sort of severe things for people that are, you know, incredibly troubled, lost their friends, finances, family, and been to rehab a bunch of times. I mean, if if you have to to meet those standards to be able to enter the discussion, uh, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so if we if we just kind of really break it down and kind of, I guess, maybe try and start almost in like the the beginning stages of with, like how addiction kind of starts to form. Mm-hmm. Would you say that oftentimes people there are there certain people that might be more prone to addictive personalities or behaviors based on their genetics? Is there a genetic kind of underlying factor at all? Yeah. So there is a genetic role. Um, the first thing I'll say is not so much. Um, if anything, it's like 
maybe 10% genetic. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people make it out to be more like 50 plus percent genetic. And that just has not panned out. So um, to explain the genetics, I'd say people have a a hard time uh, trying to explain certain behaviors. and, And we like to put things on genetics or things that are sort of harder science mm-hmm. you know so so this person's mean because of the genetics that this person's depressed because of it and this person's an addict because of their genetics um, there's a tendency by all of us to feel like we want to know there's a, a clear cause so, right so like clear reason yeah we yeah. love we love very clear reasons mm-hmm. um also a lot of us like to know if we don't have an addiction that we, we want to think we're safe mm-hmm. so you know we want to think we don't have the addiction gene so we're fine um, so there's reasons that people like to make it out to be genetic, uh, but it just hasn't panned out. Uh, whether you look at identical twin studies, where the if one identical twin has an addiction, the odds are the other one doesn't have an addiction, actually. So that's not just identical genetics. That's also, in those cases, identical upbringings. Um, the chances very, very much increased, but, but not necessarily predictive. Um, so that that would be one of the more sort of blatant examples. Um, another one would be that um, the researchers have, have keep thinking that they found the gene, by the way. There's been dozens of genes identified, um, but these are all very, very loose associations. Mm. Um, we've, we've identified a lot of them. We've actually bred monkeys to have all these genes together. So like all the bad ones. Um, bred them to to um, to observe, you know, if you get all these bad hits, all these bad genes, do those monkeys get addiction? And the answer is no. Huh. And far, far more predictive is how they're raised. Mm. And that starts to get to some of your other questions there. So if you take a monkey with all the bad genes and, and you would think is predictive of addiction um, and raise them in a nurturing environment, so the mother uh, breastfeeds, holds them, nurtures um, they don't go on to have addiction take the opposite monkey one that has no so-called addiction genes and put them in a very harsh cold environment so not really being held very much and and things like that um, they do go on to have an addiction and uh, and so you know, there, there's example after example that this just isn't the case. We can also look at um, larger population studies. So um, Native Americans, um, a lot of people know that they have real struggles with alcohol. And those communities, they did not struggle with alcohol before. Um, their genes might have changed a little bit, but it's not that their genes have changed in just a couple generations. Uh, the problem quite clearly is that they've been a displaced people. Mm. You know, they once were living in ways that they chose and then settlers totally disrupted that and then, you know, changed their whole way of being. So they're an afflicted people. Mm. Um, and, and so it's things like that. And, you know, any angle you look at, whether it's those genetic studies, the hard lab, animal studies and studies of people, um, they all point in the same direction that it has much more to do with how you're raised than, than your genes. And some of you say, well, you know, aren't there some genes that make people, you know, this and that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's genes that make you and I look the way we do. Um, as much as a gene can make someone, say, you know, tall, you know, it can't make someone a basketball player. Mm. It can make someone tall. 
you know, and I know you're an athlete, you know, it can, it can give you certain features about, you know, the muscle fibers that you have, um, and then a certain height and all that, but it, it can't make you play soccer, right. right? There's no gene that can make you do a certain behavior. It's the same thing with addiction. It's no different. Uh, genes can make us uh, more apt to take risks, um, and, and be more expressive, things like that. But the genes don't necessarily cause us to use a certain chemical. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a risky person genetically, um, that could also mean that you're um, entrepreneurial or you like you know, making risky investments and things like that. Um, so, so it's not predictive of behavior. Um, genes are just predictive of certain traits. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and yeah, that reminds me. I, I did. I heard about a study where they took, I think it was rats or mice or something like that. And they put them in, you know, a, a tank, like a small container. And they put, I think, I think it was cocaine, maybe cocaine, a little bit of cocaine in their water source. Mm-hmm. And so when they leave the rats in this tiny, kind of crappy home, um, all the mice are constantly going to the the cocaine induced water source, and they're just like really get like it's clear that they're addicted i guess and they're using using the drug a lot Uh Uh, but then when they take this like you know the same thing group of mice and they put them in like a much bigger environment where they have other forms of stimulus basically other forms of uh, potentially meaning in life like they can run they can they have like the hamster wheels they have like tons it's a much bigger environment there's much more basically much more things to be done they're not just stuck in a cage mm-hmm. and they put the same the cocaine water in there and none of the water like none of the mice even really touch it they don't they don't use it yeah that's right um and that what you're referring to is called rat park oh, and, okay and um yeah they went back and tried to replicate these studies that were done with these smaller cages and when you set up the same sorts of study where you had the same amount of cocaine or other substance or same um pain level and things like that um, but put them in the rat park, um, all the results of these studies were getting overturned. Mm. So it's just what we're talking about. You know, when, when, you, when you change the, the nurturing, change the environment, um, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty fascinating because it does make you think as well about some of those studies that people ran and like, yeah, it makes sense for if, if they're just stuck in a tiny box essentially. What else are they going to do? Right. And by the way, I mean, we still don't have this right when we're studying anxiety and depression and, and pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're still, um, you know, if you if you read a lot of the studies that are done on this basic level, um, we're still not doing it in rat park like environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could say, well, you know, some people really are, you know, in a so-called caged, you know, if they're in a really bad environment it's a cold environment and they don't have friends and other stimuli, um, then perhaps in those cases, you know, the, the typical rat model might actually be, you know, a good match to look mm-hmm. at, um, but not for most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess when we get past that kind of whole genetic thing, because like you said, it, it's actually only maybe, what, 10%. It's a small fraction of what the real underlying causes might be. Um, what would you say would maybe be the most, I guess, the what holds the most weight maybe in kind of pushing someone towards, uh, I guess, a future life of addiction or going down that kind of path? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that happen. Um, one of them is that there's usually, um, so, so I'll list several features, but, you know, it's not that, you know, someone with an addiction would necessarily have all these 
Um, and usually also just one is not enough. So that's the, the good news. Um, but typically people that end up having an addiction are raised in a way where um, people are very critical of them. Um, if it's not outward critique, so like bullying, teasing, or just degrading sorts of things, or, or abuse, of course, um, then it could be subtle. And subtle could look like, you know, are you really going to wear that? Or, you know, that, you know, constantly pestering, you know, to, to get better grades or be more social or wear better things or, you know, should be doing this, should be doing that. Um, because there, you know, the implied message is you're not enough. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not enough of a person, either not smart enough, not good looking enough, not friendly or social enough, not well behaved enough. Um, so that can be subtle or it can be overt, you know, in the, in, if it's abuse or molestation. Um, there's also often a string of needing to please other people. Um, so this is similar, but a little bit, a little bit different where um, you're being raised in a way where you're being rewarded when you, you either fit in or keep other people happy. Mm. So it could be with friends, typically with parents where the parents um, are so pleased when the kid, you know, is, is just who they want them to be. Mm-hmm. So it could be the grades, could be that they behave just how they want, um, or that they take up an interest that the parents want, you know, but the kid doesn't want to, stuff like that. Um, so, so those are a couple of the, the sort of geneses of it. And you can think of, you know, wh- what I call it is just life isn't fun. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's how I'd simplify it. You know, if you boil it down, the, the child is learning life is not fun. I'm either the object of other people. So I'm, I'm not my own person. I'm, I'm sort of living to please or satisfy mm-hmm. other people's needs. It could be one person. It could be society. You know, that at every turn, at every turn, they're being told, you know, to do certain things and that they're not enough or they're doing it wrong. Um, but, you know, that's not fun. It's also not fun to just be outwardly you know, abused or neglected or, or made to feel like you're, you're just not accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, it goes on and develops into a lack of belonging. So belonging is a big deal with addiction. Um, but if you think about it, lack of belonging and everything I've described so far um, might only lead to depression. And when I say only, you know, d- depression itself isn't so nice to deal with and depression can kill as well. Um, but I say only just in the sense that almost everyone with an addiction has some form of pain, um, depression, anxiety, anger, you know, any of those sorts of things. Um, but in addiction, it's usually more than just feeling bad, feeling scared or feeling like you don't belong. Um, more than that, there's often a, a impulsivity. Mm-hmm. So when I describe what addiction is, um, I describe it not just as having a pain. There is almost always a pain there of some sort, but that there's this lack of ability to regulate your internal emotional state. Mm -hmm. So people who go on to have an addiction, when you look backwards, you see they just couldn't control their emotions very well. And that can be disguised for a while. So say you've got a five-year-old, seven-year-old, and the way that you help them deal with bad things is to take them out for ice cream. That'd be just a very normal, innocent thing. Or throw the TV on, throw video games at the kid, 
you know, do anything just to sort of stimulate them and pull them out of this negative state. Um, but the key here is it's with something outside of them. Mm. Um, they're not riding it out. Um, they're not sitting with their feelings. They're not exploring them. They're not learning that it will pass. You know, so they're missing a lot of really, really key things to learn about your internal emotional state. Um, and instead learning you know, to just ignore it or look past it or distract from it. And so it can look just fine when those kids are young because if it's ice cream or video games, you don't notice they're going to have an addiction. You, you just think they're a normal kid or maybe they just play an extra you know, one or two video games too many a day. But um, you don't notice till later, uh-oh, they never developed that skill. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense too. Totally makes sense. And also kind of um, the way you're talking about it is when when parents kind of use um, just because that's this is fitting for this example. But when they use like like you said, going out to ice cream or a video game or whatever, some kind of external object or activity, something that they can push to the kid to help them, I guess, avoid or stop thinking about their negative emotions or their sadness, whatever it may be. Does that also, do you think that's kind of training their brain a little bit? Because in terms of like the, um, even just like the reward system that's set up in the brain, because if you, if you think about someone being in a difficult place or if they get something bad happens, they get hurt, they get sad, then if they grow up in their entire life, it's always being coupled with this outward or this external kind of object that's bringing them out, right? So it's something bad happened, now I get to go get ice cream something bad happened, I get to play the extra video game, like all these, it's kind of brings in that reward system when something bad happens. I feel like that could definitely kind of lead to a a pattern or into, you know, kind of turn to a, a substance abuse. Does that, oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Is that, that kind of the pattern that, that unfolds? You, you got it exactly. That's exactly what happens. And, and that's why I like to think of it broadly. Um, if you take that person you know, or that grown-up kid, um, and put them in a bad environment. Um, not necessarily a terrible and dangerous one, but, you know, bad environment could just be, you know, mostly well-to-do people, but experimenting with drugs or drinking early. Um, you know, you, you expose them to much of anything and good luck. Mm -hmm. um, or take a lawyer, you know, and, and expose them to, you know, to bars with colleagues and things. You know, again, good luck. You know, after you've had a rough day, if it's, you know, it's not a video game anymore. Now it's go drinking at the bar, get mm -hmm. wasted. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's even rewarded. You know, that that's what your colleagues doing or that's what people are talking about the next day. Um, yeah. I mean, good good luck not doing that when you're exposed in, in certain ways. Now, do some people have everything we described and not have an addiction? Sure. You know, they might be overly disciplined. Um, they might even be too anxious mm -hmm. um, or they might have just kind of gotten lucky with their, their friend group or their family just being, a, you know, super dry people or, um, you know, or just kind of too many eyes and, and ears around and, and not good access to the stuff, you know. Um, so exposure still has to do with it. And going back to, you know, just say no campaign, um, that has something to do with it. You know, if you've got all this stuff around it's hard to turn it down if you're a complete setup for addiction. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you take a resilient kid who did not learn that he needs to do all these things to get through their internal negative state, um, you can 
put the whole buffet of, of goodies in front of them and they'll do okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something else that's kind of interesting to me, um, I don't know if there's any kind of facts or statistics on this, but in terms of addiction issues, I mean, do you, how far do they even go back in terms of recording this? Because I'd be curious to see what addiction problems there would have been even if like 100, 200 years ago as compared to now, just because just like based on kind of how you're setting that up in terms of at least childhood upbringing, mm-hmm. there's a lot more ways to kind of reward or distract children nowadays, I would say, with technology, with, you know, with everything. Whereas a couple yeah. hundred years ago, it would have been a lot harder to be like, here's a video game. It's just, there's not as much of that. So it seems like maybe previously it would have been kind of more so that you just kind of had to work through your emotions because there wasn't as much of that external stimuli. Do you, is there any kind of anything like that? Yeah. You know, I've looked and there's not good data on that. Part of that's because we just, we didn't even really recognize substance Mm -hmm. use disorders, you know, at the turn of last century. So, right. Um, we don't have good, you know, good epidemiology of that. Um, we do see more narratives as far as like what people thought of, you know, uh, alcoholics and things before. But as far as, you know, how many people truly had an addiction before, um, it, it's not clear because we weren't even really defining it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, my suspicion, which I, I, I think, you know, is a pretty easy consensus with other um, people is that we're absolutely more addicted mm-hmm. than than before. I mean, I, I don't see how that wouldn't be the case. So, yeah, video games, you could say, are more addictive than, you know, throwing a rock in a field, you know, a, a long time ago or, or just playing ball. Um, it's, you know, nowadays, it's just so easy to access, right? Mm-hmm. Before, if part of that stimulation or entertainment, um, you could say maybe, you know, was addictive, it... it it's not quite like now because if before, you know, to, to go play ball or, or, you know, screw around outside to distract yourself, you can say it's distracting yourself, but you might have been doing it with people. You might have still been kind of regulating yourself while you were doing it mm-hmm. in nature. Um, there would be sort of more people in the home. You know, people didn't have all the different bedrooms for each person mm-hmm. before. Um, there are a lot of regulating forces going on. Um including that people were just very busy. Mm-hmm. I mean, kids now um, and adults, I mean, we're we're pretty free when we're free. Yeah. I mean, people are watching Netflix or, you know, the, the huge sort of amount of people using and watching porn. I mean, before there was no time. You know, mm-hmm. you, you'd work hard the whole day. You'd come home. It'd take longer to cook because, you know, no, no microwaves, no pre-prepared things. Um, and then by the time you're done that and dealing with, you know, getting the family down to sleep and, you know, you, you had to go to sleep and get ready for the next day. And there wasn't, you know, as much wealth either for, for kids to get away with it. You know, Mm -hmm. now, you know, kids living, you know, in a basement or, you know, it's very cheap and affordable now to just have, you know, a little apartment before, you know, you, you couldn't afford to do these things there wasn't the time mm-hmm. so there were a lot of checks and balances before that don't exist um now there's just too much freedom yeah yeah and that actually that, that kind of brings brings up another thing that i like it, it seems that there's a pretty heavy correlation um with a lot especially a lot of substance abuse with you see it a lot with um children that are 
brought up in really, really, I guess, maybe wealthy environments, I think. That seems to be at least, I don't know if it's for sure factual, but at least from what I've seen, it does seem to be pretty common that when you have kids that are brought up in really, really wealthy environments, now, of course, this isn't always, but I imagine it's especially when the parents are like, neglectful they're probably traveling a lot they're not spending a lot of time with their kid it kind of aids it but when when a child has kind of t- all this money and they don't really have to work they they kind of get through life without a lot of this is kind of i guess the the opposite is like not a lot of hardship mm-hmm. you isn't it kind of a common thing for them to also fall into a more of a drug and substance abuse kind of lifestyle yeah very high rates of addiction yeah. it, it, you know it's yeah, when, when we look at the other end, so people who go through the hardships, I, I think it's easier for people to imagine that if you got beaten and made, you know, you were made to feel for years and years that you were just a piece of crap and, and not welcomed and unaccepted. It's easy for people to think of that kid growing up saying, oh, my God, when I got high for the first time, you know, I felt fine for mm-hmm. a little while. That, I think, is something people can wrap their heads around. Um, where, and this gets back to also where, you know, we, we don't discuss the full picture, you know, people usually don't want to take pity on this rich kid, you know, you know, that, that can do whatever he wants growing up. It feels like, oh, that prick, you know, he he had all (laughs) the, the opportunity, everything at his disposal, he could have done anything and he's choosing a life of addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's real illness there, you know, there's, that kid is not necessarily learning how to deal with their emotions if they've got too many things to distract themselves with. Um, oft, I mean, we're going to stereotype here, but often, um, yeah, you know, affluent neighborhoods, the, the parents are working really hard. Sometimes even being philanthropists or, you know, volunteering, they're, they're going out and still very driven parents and the kids are kind of getting left, you know, on their own or, or with, you know, a nanny and people like that. I just admitted a patient like that at a rehab, you know, yesterday. Um, so, you know, that that happens mm-hmm. where they they don't learn to regulate. Um, it doesn't look like there is a need, but there is because maybe they're being ignored Um life feels very, very empty as well. Again, mm-hmm. this is hard for a lot of people to sympathize with, but um, people who have a lot of opportunity, financial or otherwise, um, life is extremely empty for them. Mm-hmm. They they grow up to feel um, like they don't have their own story. They try very, very hard to create their own life story because it was given to them um, figuratively and literally. You know, they've got, you know, they've got money already from the start. Uh, they may already have a connection to start at a job. And they they know it inside that they didn't work for that. They didn't go through the normal life struggle or the normal consequences mm-hmm. of of trying to go after, you know, a dream. And and it feels really, really bad for them. And you know, fine if you don't sympathize with them as much as the kid that grew up in poverty that's a minority. Um, but they are suffering and and they're killing themselves whether by suicide or or overdose um so they're clearly suffering Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's that's really fascinating too to look at that it happens on both ends of that spectrum Uh because i think it definitely i don't know it just opens a lot of doors to in terms of understanding where where it really comes from because it's not obviously it's not just purely from that 
like you're talking about the the poverty stricken like if you're being beaten or abused at least not in the more classical sense of abuse mm-hmm. um so it's just really interesting to see that across the spectrum like that yeah you know yeah and some of the other things that happen too is there's a lot of pressure mm. so um you know you if you overlay certain other things that we care about like we'd want a kid living in poverty you know to to have parents that put a little bit of pressure on them you know to to get good grades and you know dream big um but in our stereotype let's say of that kid in poverty a lot of the times they're not getting a lot of direction Mm -hmm. maybe a single parent household and things like that where the parent either just doesn't have the time or too you know overwhelmed with themselves um, to, to do that sort of fostering, you know, for that child and give them direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the wealthy house, um, there, there might be, uh, you know, some neglect, but mixed also with intense pressure to perform, mm-hmm. you know, cause, cause Hey, we're, we're a smart, rich household. You better get good grades and get into a good school and make something of yourself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, what if you just wanted to be a middle manager somewhere and slowly work your way up to that? Yeah, um, that doesn't usually satisfy their their surroundings, and they're trying to please other people. They're often only getting the rewards when they do certain you know tricks for for the family. So um, things get hung over their heads. Mm-hmm. And we're not just talking about super wealthy people. I mean, this just happens in middle class homes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got some discretionary money, and you're only getting you know a certain reward. You know, like a skateboard or whatever. You know, you're only getting it if you do certain things that the parents want, you mm-hmm. know, not, not things that the kids dream about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so kind of, you were, you were talking about a little bit before, um, when, when people kind of start ex- kind of falling into these different areas of life and you kind of mentioned depression, is that, is depression, would you say is often kind of the first thing that people will stumble upon or kind of fall into prior to an addiction or, does it does it kind of go back and like does it not necessarily always come first yeah it depends who you ask you know the the numbers range but somewhere in the middle they'll say about 60 percent of people with an addiction have what they call comorbid mental illness meaning you know they've also got some form of diagnosable mental illness Mm -hmm. i'd say it's closer to a hundred percent i mean when i sit with patients and this is what i do you know they they all have a suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, the, really, the only question is, is it clinical? So do you have a clinical level of depression mm-hmm. or generalized anxiety disorder or panic attacks? You know, is it a clinical degree of it or, or is it just a little bit more mild? So mm-hmm. someone who's feeling empty and sad but still getting through life and sleeping okay, you know, they're not clinically depressed, but boy, can they feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so our diagnostic sort of criteria sometimes... Um, hide some of the story that's happening you know mm-hmm. in, in addiction everyone's suffering um, and usually before they develop the addiction is an important point to make because there's always going to be a suffering after addiction hits mm-hmm. um, you know there's always destruction um, the only case I'd say where that's not quite always happening is um, when there's not necessarily you know a, a depression or anxiety but just a lot of boredom Mm-hmm. And that usually comes along with that emptiness. Yeah. So life is boring. Life is empty. I don't know what to do with myself other than get high. You know, mm-hmm. I got I to gotta make this fun. I got to get things a little more risky. Mm-hmm. I got to live on the edge. Um, so 
those are cases where there's not really even any form of mental illness at all. Um, but still, there's a struggle. Right? Yeah. You know, if you're really bored with life, there's still something wrong. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, but it's not a mental illness. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, would, I mean, I, at least personally, I, I think boredom is, I mean, boredom is terrible. Mm-hmm. I think boredom will push people to do, obviously, some terrible things just because when you take away everything else, if, if, the, if the mind is that bored and you don't have any of that, it just takes away a lot of drive. It takes away a purpose. It takes away so many things from your life that, I don't know, I think I could see boredom being extremely detrimental for people. Yeah. And just think about it, you know, very simply think of, you know, I don't know, sitting in your fifth grade class and like, you know, the maybe the the typical, you know, kid that might go on to have depre- uh, addiction might have gotten abused. And, and you can see they're just a very dysregulated kid. But, you know, talking about the boredom. Um, their house might be just fine at home. You know, you wouldn't ever call that kid troubled, but, you know, that bored kid is still just going to blurt out and start throwing papers and, you know, you know, doing doing stuff to disrupt the class if they're bored. You mm-hmm. know, if they're not finding the teacher engaging or they're just not interested in the subject or they're, you know, smart and, and not very stimulated by the subject or the way it's being taught, um, Think about that kid too, right? There's nothing quite wrong, but they're bored. They're going to act out. Mm-hmm. You know, they start doing stupid things just to entertain themselves. And adults do that too, mm-hmm. right? You know, we get bored and we just, you know, oh, I've already got a wife and kids or, you know, my job's going okay. Uh, I want to do something here. You know, yeah. I want to do something not overly disciplined and healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an audience like this that's listening and, you know, into wellness um, that that can happen, right? It's not like everybody um, acts in the healthiest ways. I mean, if if you know, okay, I want to I want to exercise. I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to practice, you know, different breathing techniques and be spiritual. Some people are very genuinely satisfied by that, um, but other people um, are, are never ending in their in their craving, right? They they can't satisfy. And they're trying to do all these other things to regulate and and they just need more or they're just still bored by it. You mm-hmm. know, uh, some people love yoga. Other people just they're genuinely bored by it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you do all these sort of wellness tricks, if you will, and they're not stimulating and genuinely fun for that person, you know, they're, they're still going to just be bored. They mm-hmm. want to do something that's got more edge to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it, when it comes down to, I guess, you, you know, people start kind of falling into different, either depression, anxiety, or if they're just start dabbling into substance abuse, is there like, how long is it usually until someone's realizes if ever that, that they have a problem? Because kind of like you were saying with, with the lack of conversation around it, people don't want to talk about it. No one wants to kind of look at themselves and realize like I might have a, a problem with with this substance or with, with some kind of action that's that's detrimental to me how, how mm. does someone what what's you is it usually outside like friends or family that that intervenes that kind of brings that to light it really ranges I I mean I have some patients come and and even before they've been to any treatment um, they know it full mm-hmm. well. I mean, you, you just begin to inquire about their mood state or what they've been through. 
and they've already put it all together. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't necessarily know what to do with it, but they know, yeah, you know, I had this part, you know, difficult in my childhood. I've been depressed. Yes, I hate myself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they they already can come out and say those things and associate it with, you know, this need to to do something to regulate themselves. Um, Other people, they're on the complete end, other end of that spectrum. And as much as you do to try and sort of invite them to look at, you know, what it might be associated with, what might have, um, you know, made their addiction develop, um, they just won't have it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not ready to hear that or think about it yet. Um, And there's a bunch of reasons people can get that way. But yeah, I mean, someone else I was just treating and speaking to the team with this week, you know, one of the people asked, you know, because I was describing my assessment of how that person's addiction developed. And um, and part of it had to do with something they went through in childhood. Um, it, it was a sibling that had just been beating them. Well, the the patient wasn't near putting that together. As, as much as you'd think it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the other people asked on the team a very good question, you know, should we deal with that? And um, the answer was no, not yet. You know, I if if that patient was sort of kept getting exposed to these questions, you know, don't you see, don't you see, you know, didn't, you know don't you feel a lot of pain from your childhood? Um, they're just going to reject treatment. So mm. uh, some people just really aren't in a place that they're ready to put it together. But it, it really ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of emotional attunement. But also some people we could say are innately pretty emotionally attuned but never had practice doing that so Mm -hmm. if you have parents that just never talked about how they felt never showed emotion and just you know went to work came home got the job done or if people ever started you know crying or you know talking about anything being difficult you know if that conversation was shut down with something more practical like well hey then do something or you know quit complaining or you know, if, if it was always interpreted as just complaining and you got to shut up, mm-hmm. um, they might be a very insightful person, but they're not going to practice the art of being attuned to what's causing you to reach for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so those would be cases as well where, you know, you, you get them as patients, you know, one, two, four decades later and you've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine there's there must be just so much suppression kind of where like you said, they just can't even recognize any of that because they just they haven't associated or even looked into it at all in so long that it's kind of just not not really there for them. Yeah, and in hindsight, it always makes like really easy and perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's very different when you're going through it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, and so that that kind of brings me to another point is so for people that maybe they are not experiencing any of these issues, at least to to an extreme degree. A lot of people will have someone close to them, though, at least a friend or a family member, that probably will experience some form of either depression or substance abuse or something along those lines, I would say, especially mm-hmm. with kind of how, how things have progressed. Um, what what would you say are good ways for people to to try and approach their loved ones or their friends or how, how do you kind of deal with that if you see someone start? Cause I feel like that's also a really difficult thing because most people feel like, do I bring it up? I don't want to upset them. How do I, you know, how do I bring up this issue that I'm starting to see? Yeah. There's, you know, there's a lot that goes into it cause you, 
you generally want to do it with someone that you've established some you know level of trust with yeah you know, to to come in as an outsider you know if it's like someone you barely talk to at work right you know, probably not a good idea probably someone else should step up and do that same thing with a friend you know that it whoever hears that message you know the first thing to understand is their defenses and walls go up right away mm-hmm. so as soon as you start questioning you know just think even you know just dealing with someone's work forget addiction forget the stigma there you know if you're going to critique someone's work um they don't want to hear it no mm-hmm. one wants to be made to feel like i'm i'm not doing things right so um so defenses go up right away so one of the first things to think about is how do i not bring about this wall of defense from the person mm-hmm. um uh, so you 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 never want to just come at it like, hey, you're doing something wrong. I know you're addicted. I see how much you're drinking, and you've got to stop. Mm-hmm. Two things go on, you know, wrong in that instance. One is you're just attacking them. Um, number two, you're trying to tell them or imply that it's a simple choice. You know, just stop drinking, mm-hmm. um, and and that just doesn't work at all. So um, typically, people are doing that though. They're saying, hey, you're drinking too much. Stop. Um, the opposite of that is what I'd encourage. So, um, rather than saying, Hey, you're drinking too much, you know, if it is someone that trusts you and, and respects what you see of them, um, it would be generally to be very specific. So I wouldn't usually use words like addiction or you're an alcoholic. Those are very loaded and Mm -hmm. induce defenses right away. So one example could be, you know, in the middle of a conversation that you know might be going well where you feel like you know they're they're being open you're you're at a level of trust in that moment say something like you know hey i noticed you've been having a lot of drinks the last few times we went out or you know or or if you're over and they've had a lot to drink you know hey i noticed you had a lot to drink and and i didn't really notice that before or it's you know it's been getting heavier um uh, you know, so so being specific there so that it's not just, you know, coming out and ascribing a label that you're an addict or an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but saying something specific. Like for you, like kind of almost a specific occasion, like if it's right there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, to the occasion is, is even better because mm-hmm. then it's not really then a matter of dispute. Mm-hmm. You can dispute all day long. Is that person an alcoholic or not? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like saying, are you a good or bad person? You can dispute that for forever. Right. But, you know, did you have 20 drinks last Saturday? You know, you either did or you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so starting with something that's that's more specific and it's not in a gotcha moment, but mm-hmm. to share it with concern. Mm-hmm. Again, that's going to not induce all that defense right away. So, you know, I saw all those drinks um, and not say, well, don't do it again. But instead, the next thing you say is you know, what's going on mm-hmm. um, or, or express concerns, you know, I'm concerned about you. Um, so, uh, so showing them that you see what's happening. I see it specifically. Um, and not only that, I'm bringing this up because I care. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not bringing this up because you're bad. And, and then I think it's this easy thing you need to stop. I'm bringing it up because I care about you. And I want to know where you are with it, mm-hmm. right? You know, you want to know, is that person concerned? Um, is there something new that happened that this is a signal of? Um, you you want to know those things. So um, coming at it, you know, with that is very helpful, but 
also fortunately very genuine mm -hmm. right none of that's fake you're not really you know doing any trickery to try and get them into treatment you know, you're just asking what's going on mm -hmm. um so that that's really the best chance people normally have and more often than not that'll go well especially with a spouse or significant other or um, you know a sibling um, where you probably have a good amount of trust that person is in the position where they are supposed to be caring about you more than anyone else um, so those are people in good positions to do that um, but yeah be specific a lot of people think you know you have to use these loaded words and call it what it is and you know and um, that you know those things typically fall under what we call like an intervention like mm -hmm. we're gonna all sit down right, in a circle right. And tell you you're an alcoholic. We all know it, and you need to go to treatment. Um, out of all the different methods used to get someone engaged in treatment, that's the worst one by far, like by many multiples. Mm -hmm. So, um, as much as it's sort of satisfying, or it feels like we're supposed to do that, or that's certainly portrayed in shows and the media that like that's how you get someone to realize it. Mm -hmm. um, put yourself in those shoes man you gotta if you're if you're surrounded by people pointing at you and calling you something you want to get the hell out mm -hmm. you want to strike back you want to defend um, the best of them will still sit there and smile but just go through motions to please because remember right. you know people with an addiction are often people pleasers too mm. so even if you don't reject it you're you're rejecting it on the inside. You're mm -hmm. just telling everyone else, okay, you show up at a rehab or you show up at a, you know, an appointment and you're showing up in, in physical form, but, you know, not emotionally or right, mentally. Right. And that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that, that's a problem there. You might think, good, I got them into treatment, but not really. Right. You got their body to treatment. fully authentic. Yeah. They're not fully there mm -hmm. um, for, for like truly even maybe they're probably not even actually accepting the issue that's going on. Right, right. So you want to make it very, you know, low, low level of threat. Mm -hmm. um, talk to them like a normal person. Don't use loaded terms and language. And then hopefully, you know, either right then have the conversation or at least they know you've invited the conversation. Maybe they follow up the next day or the next month and say, you know, I'm really glad you said something, you know, about how much I drank uh, and maybe they've thought about it mm -hmm. every single night since you said something and they come back, you know, looking for that chance to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, yeah, I mean, where you'd want to keep that conversation going, you know, short of playing their therapist is, you know, offer ideas, right? You know, if you're having a hard time with something, is it something that we can help deal with on a practical level? If it's a you know deeply emotional thing that you've carried with you your whole life, well, probably mental health treatment is in order. But you know, you know, again, still helping encourage them. You know, hey, I won't think less of you. Mm -hmm. I think you know it's actually quite strong to go into treatment and and those kinds of things. So, you know, helping just support and encourage, show them that you still accept them. They're not a monster to you. You're you're going to be by their side and, you know, not jump straight into all these punitive things. You know, if this, then this, I'm going to take all your bank you know, accounts away. I'm going to take your cash. I'm going to, you know, have you, you know, I'm going to log everywhere you go with your phone. I'm going to, you right. know, this and this and this. And it's just people play games from there. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and so then once 
should you if if after you reach out like you said hopefully they'll they'll maybe reach back out to you and it'll kind of develop from there where you can start working these issues out but if they don't like let's say you you approach them and it just they even maybe they kind of understand where you're coming from or they're somewhat accepting of the conversation but then it kind of just goes kind of goes dead over the next few weeks would you would you say kind of waiting again until another opportunity similar to that last one to try and bring it up again if if the behavior were to continue yeah and and there's something a lot of people have a hard time with and and it's extremely difficult when you're a spouse or especially a parent mm. and you want to do everything you can to save your kid you yeah. know and you know just how risky everything can get um, but it doesn't change the fact that, yeah, I mean, all you really can do is keep creating the opportunity and invitation to deal with it mm-hmm. um, by doing more and more of what I was describing. Mm-hmm. You know, just keep inviting it gently because people think you can ram it down and it just always backfires. So, um, you know, if if every single day you see the person, you just keep coming at them with it. Um, you might think you're increasing the chance they do something, but you're you're gonna get a snap, mm-hmm. right? And this this is just a truism across anything. You know, you you want to um, control fires, right? So you just keep putting them out and doing, you know. Uh, but one day, you know, 50 years later, the forest is just primed to go and and go up in flames big time because mm-hmm. you never let you know these little fires take place to where. Um, you could have a more controlled fire. You know, this mm-hmm. is like forestry management 101. Right, right, right. This happens with kids, right? You, you, you got to let them fail enough that they learn consequences, and you know they need to do things on their own. That they're not always going to get saved and bailed out and that sort of thing. So it just continues on, right? When when you look at you know someone who's drinking too much or using and getting into trouble, um, all you can do is just keep bringing it up gently but yeah if you force it they're you know real life things that can happen what i mean is um they they leave the home they disappear they feel even maybe more shameful or resentful um they could kill themselves you know they could retreat to their one friend that won't judge them in this way who's probably using or drinking more than they are you know, you you sometimes force their hand to go to the most dangerous, most sort of scary, dreaded place when you come at them too much. Mm. So it's a balance. It's complex. It's it, you know, it's not easy. And I sometimes I'm sitting there instructing spouses or parents and they want to be able to do something. But sometimes there there is a limit yeah. to what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it. Yeah. It makes it so difficult. Because like you said, you want to help so bad, but it's just, mm. there's such a fine balance there that like, I mean, you do have to kind of be careful and I mean, yeah, it's it's just so complicated. Mm-hmm. And so once, once someone, ideally they get into maybe treatment, they go through rehab, things start going well, they're, they're not using, everything's going well, they finish up. Um, then I feel like the next step kind of when people go back into the the real world, so to speak, they go back into life and then, because you they, I mean, from what I've heard, you know, addiction, you have to kind of practice and 
be aware of yourself, you know, kind of for the rest of your life. You're, they say you're you're kind of more prone to fall back into it once it's already occurred. Is that is that true? Yes and no. Yes and no. I, 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 um, that's usually the case, but it doesn't need to be. Right. It's usually the case because most people either aren't getting treatment or go to treatment that doesn't actually address underlying issues. Mm. So everything we talked about earlier, if you're still just this grown-up kid that uses other things to regulate, mm-hmm. well, yeah, then you're still screwed. You know, you might not be using alcohol, but what we see happen is people need, on, on average, about seven rounds of treatment until they're actually, quote-unquote, better. Um, and that's only measuring, you know, substances and alcohol. That's not looking at, you know, what are they doing with porn and shopping mm-hmm. and gambling and other things. Um, so, yeah, usually seven rounds of treatment. Wow. And also, um, when when people, you know, go away, they, it's... There's a lot of things that that don't get measured, and I and I see these people, and they're still actually quite ill. So they might, for example, still be very depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, there's a term dry drunk. I don't know if you've heard of, but mm-hmm. you know, it means you're you're not drinking anymore, but you you're a dry drunk. You're still sick and suffering in the same ways, and and that's not fun either. Mm-hmm. It might look prettier on the outside, but those are the cases where you know the depression might get worse. Because think about it, if you're using in this case, say alcohol, as a way of coping with your internal distress that you feel that's bad inside, and you take that away, you can white knuckle it, right, and not drink. And I've, I changed my friends, and in you know I've got all these rituals, and I stay busy, and I go to the gym, and I'm not drinking anymore. But for a lot of people, that is not a a healthy sort of forward progress. Mm. Um, they removed one sort of superficial thing, but they feel like crap inside. They feel empty. They might still feel the same depression they felt. They might still feel whatever kind of resentments or rage they felt before, just as lost maybe as they were before. It's not like people make it out that, you know, you remove the the chemical and, oh, their best self comes out and they're so healthy now. And right. they see the light, you know, they, they're, they're kinder and they're more productive. Um, that's not what what leads to the health or, you know, and it leads to high, high degrees of relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that do well, not just don't relapse, but actually enjoy their lives are people who fundamentally change the stuff that we were talking about, where they actually can tolerate bad feelings. They can tolerate their distress. They see themselves through it and they develop a much healthier relationship to the way they feel, mm. specifically negative feelings, mm-hmm. but sometimes positive too, right? People go out and recreationally use out of excitement right, and joy too. Right. So it's it's all of it. And when you do that, you're not a lifelong addict. Um, you're not, you know, you don't have to continually fight it. Um, people who get well, uh, you know, underneath the outward behavior um, do very, very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting, too, because actually I had a a woman who she works a lot with in kind of grief counseling and kind of she's all about the discussion of grief being increased. Um, And I had her on the podcast last week. Mm -hmm. And so when when I was talking to her, it it was like obviously we weren't talking about addiction, but it was still like a very similar, similar idea where we were talking about a a big issue of people really not kind of like how we started at the beginning talking about where people just can't really fully 
I guess, experience, understand, go through their feelings and their emotions internally. And like you said, bad feelings, but as well, good feelings. Mm -hmm. It's just that entire spectrum of these emotions that come up. And instead of, I guess, essentially, instead of turning to outward kind of fixes or things to help you understand or maybe even just get away from the emotions, I I guess it, it really is important to fully kind of be present in your emotions and kind of go through them and is that is that would you say that's kind of one of the most important things i guess yeah yeah and you can see why it's such a tall order mm-hmm. right yeah. for for the person to go through it's also hard i mean where i see a lot of people get it wrong in the mental health field is they're they're sort of complying with the patient's desire to not have to do the really hard work mm. right it's it's a practical logical thing to help someone you know choose better friends and and fill their time with better things and take their dealer's number out of the phone and stuff like that. I mean, that's the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, a- any person with common sense can do that. But but the real question is, can the patient and, you know, or if they're in treatment, can they find someone who will who will actually push them to deal with their most difficult things in life? I mean, nobody wants to deal with, like you're talking about grief, right? No one wants to to deal with losses, um, or no one wants to deal with the bad feeling we get with you know a controlling boss or a bad marriage or you know we, no one really wants to sit with badness, mm-hmm. and that's what we're talking about doing, you know, sitting with badness and learning a lot of different things about it. You know, learning that it will pass, um, learning that we can tolerate it learning that we can talk about it or find some solace doing other things on spiritual levels. I mean, there's there's a lot of really deep and meaningful things to do with our pain. But when we feel, let's say, entitled to not have pain mm. is when it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, when we feel like, I shouldn't feel this level of fear. I shouldn't mm-hmm. feel this level of anger or sadness. Um then we start developing this strange relationship to bad feelings where mm-hmm. we'll do whatever we can to not feel bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that's funny because that same woman, she was talking about how she wants to just remove the words should and shouldn't from her vocabulary altogether. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it makes sense because when you're talking about like, I should or shouldn't feel this way, um, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of a point, not pointless thing to say, but it, it's, it's gonna be detrimental like you said to understanding the emotion because whether you should or you shouldn't isn't really relevant it's that you right. are, you are <laughs> you already are yeah it's right. there so it, it it's kind of like it's kind of like worrying about what what could have been or what should have been or what shouldn't be it's all it's just going to cause you more suffering in the end really yeah yeah it's as you know it's 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 for yourself but it's for other people you know if someone else hits you you could say you know they shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair enough statement. <laughs> I, I wouldn't really argue with it, but that's past already. You know, right. you, it doesn't make it hurt any less. That's for sure. No, <laughs> you know, they. It doesn't change. You know, they they did. Mm-hmm. You know, whether they should or shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when you go through life like that, you know, I should not have been, you know, hit. I should not have been mistreated. I should not have been told that. I should not have been made to feel bad about this. I should not have, you know, this and that. It's, it. Those are out of a. And this might be a strong word for some people to hear, but it is sort of this entitled feeling that mm. I should not have to feel bad. Right. And nobody gets that. Nobody gets that pass. Mm-hmm. I know. I sure as hell don't. I mean, there's a lot of things that just feel bad. 
and um and on the you know the 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 thing that a lot of people don't like about that is they'll say well uh-oh and i don't want life to feel bad and i don't want to think that in the future i'm gonna have to just keep encountering badness that's a bad message yeah. but it's quite the opposite really you know but you do have to kind of see through to the other side where when you can actually not just acknowledge and respect but accept that we're not entitled to that that there is going to be pain i'm i'm going to get hungry i'm going to have some joint pain i might have to sit in traffic i might be bored with that you know i might have to listen or deal with someone that i don't want to i'm not entitled to not have any of that and and that to me doesn't sound bad and boring or or you know like a life not worth living to me when you see yourself through it and accept that then you're not fighting it all the time right mm-hmm. it's it is life it's it's not a hindrance to life it it is life right, right. so you know it it's it's pushing through to the whole other side of just how you relate to distress and when you do that the really encouraging exciting thing is Every day is fine. I mean, it, it just is. The day just is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not to be evaluated good or bad. It's, you know, it, it just is. It's something you encounter and, and that's to be enjoyed and, and allowed and accepted. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not waiting for these bad things the next day or around that next corner. It, it just is. N- when you don't have that feeling of entitlement and you can accept the badness that is, um, you realize that 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 primary insult is not as bad as the secondary. So, say someone hits me. Well, I don't want to get hit. It'll hurt, but it hurts a lot more when I feel pissed off. Now, right. right. Yeah. Your reaction and everything that ensues afterwards is yeah. usually much longer lasting. Yeah. I'm pissed off. I'm losing sleep. I'm deciding who to tell about it. How mm-hmm. do I get back at them? And Oh, God, and that can last festers. hours, days. Yeah. Now I'm pissed off. My yeah. cortisol's up. I'm getting more infections mm-hmm. and I feel lousy. My energy's low. Right. That's the secondary part. And that all comes from this feeling of entitlement. I'm entitled to, to not have badness happen. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas still, if that person hits me, it hurts. But OK, it happened. I encountered it. Um, it's a it's a much more powerful, pleasant, calm way to be um and and it still allows you to react to the world and and do what you need to do Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and yeah i mean so with with doing those kinds of things do do you do you personally like practice any kind of like mindfulness or meditation or things kind of in that realm is that is that because that's i think a really common or i guess more of a the way that people describe how they're able to sit with their feelings and kind of understand them and things like that is it's kind of under this broad blanket of like a mindfulness or meditation that they're really able to kind of sit there. I don't know if it's necessarily Mm -hmm. the same thing, but I think it it's done in different ways to be able to achieve that. Is there kind of practices like that that you recommend or what do you, what, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, a lot of things to say about it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone through periods where I practice different forms of meditation or mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, some of the times, it's more typical like where you might have, you know, guided imagery or progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, you know, where the object or the goal is to get your body regulated and, and calm. And that has its own purpose, right? You know, you know, we were talking before about, can, you know, can you learn to tolerate feelings or see yourself through them? It helps with that. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily give you this this thing we were talking about just recently here, though, mm-hmm. to see through and really come to certain levels of acceptance. So mm-hmm. that um, I find, you know, to to come out of a, a lot of um, Eastern teachings, a lot of spiritual te- teachings, life lessons, a lot of working with my patients and seeing how people suffer. And so I'd, I'd kind of lump that all as really um, philosophically accepting a lot of things, mm-hmm. um, whether it's coming out of the religious realm or, or just, you know, logic even. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and, and that's sort of where I, I must admit I don't sit and meditate, mm-hmm. you know, for, for an hour every day. But what I do do out of that practice is it sets you up to then notice everything that's going on mm-hmm. um, in fuller color and much more readily mm-hmm. so yeah, i notice a lot more i mean do i get upset about things or sad oh i mean i'm a normal person but um it's i interrupt it mm-hmm. right i'm i'm in a very good place to interrupt it and say oh i think i know what might be happening in me mm-hmm. and 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 then deal with what parts are worth dismissing and what parts aren't yeah yeah it's kind of like um it's like you have like a little earthquake and you're able to, instead of letting the shock waves and the damage just go on infinitely or like, you know, ruin the next two weeks of your life. And you're just constantly thinking about this one thing that happened, kind of like we were talking about with you get hit. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's it's maybe you're able to kind of not suppress because that's not the right word for this, but it's just you're able to kind of understand it and it, it reduces all that outside damage that didn't really need to happen from from the small like smaller occasion i feel like right yeah so it's sort of like putting it through just this eloquent filter Mm -hmm. right so so yeah if we stick with the example of i got hit you know put all those terrible feelings i get through a filter and maybe well if i was hit by you know one of my daughters then you know I can see past that and mm-hmm. I'm I'm fine. If I'm hit by someone who's got it out for me or I'm scared they're going to, you know, keep doing something violent, well, you know, I have to do something, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I need to take a lot of action and and do what I need to do to protect myself. So, um you know, so everything needs to go through this filter. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes still feeling upset might even be okay. I mm-hmm. mean, we can use our feelings to fuel and drive our behavior. Um, but we need to do it in an eloquent way. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, you know, some people I do see get confused and think we're well, just going to dismiss all emotion and and just sort of be in this Zen state. But <laughs> you know, the Zen masters still can feel, mm-hmm. um, and and it's just going through a filter for them very automatically. Mm-hmm. For someone like me, you know, it takes a lot of work. Right, you know? right, yeah, and I mean uh, that's something I guess. I would say everyone obviously this just has to really work on and it's it's a very kind of regular practice whatever however you do it through like you said it's a lot of maybe spiritual philosophical however you do it it's it's going to be a, you know a pretty constant practice where you're trying to get better at understanding these emotions I feel like yeah yeah and what and what I think helps is trying to understand usually the world and then thinking about how it applies to ourselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you would look at someone else and say, you know, hey, they need to accept that there's harshness to the world, um, then turn inward and say, okay, am I doing that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if not, you know, how? And do, do I see other people doing it? How do they do it? Are they in a very, very different spot? 
or is that someone I can seek mentorship from or, or try and sort of um, copy, if you will. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's got to go through all the, the, you know, quite, quite a process to decide for oneself, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Um, and, and there's no end to it either, mm-hmm. which is really fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I guess the other thing I did want to talk to you about before we finished was about the, your, your kind of like online, um, kind of services that you provide. Was it self, mm-hmm. self, it's called self recovery, self recovery.org. Yeah. yeah. So what, what can you kind of tell me a little bit about that then? Uh, what I did with that is I wanted to address all the sorts of barriers and things that exist. So um, a lot of people don't realize, for example, with the addiction epidemic, that only one in 10 people with an addiction are ever engaging in any form of care. So when we see everything that's going on, increasing funding, increasing access to care and this and that, we are still only reaching one in 10. So that bothered me a lot, still bothers me. Um, so being online lets people access something privately from home and not have their walls up. Mm-hmm. So it's not meant to replace, you know, a rehab or coming in to see me in my office. It's meant to actually give a, a new offering to people that otherwise wouldn't necessarily do anything, um, either because of time, money, insurance, but um, usually more often because of you know their own shame, because of their own need for privacy, or they're working a lot and just can't take that that time from work or family. So. There are a lot of reasons people don't get into care. So um, a lot of it's designed to help those nine in 10 people with an addiction finally access something. Um, the other part of it is that it's actually evidence-based and deals with all the sorts of themes that people need to to fully heal. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's comprehensive and deals with the underlying issues. Because um, one of the problems that exists now is um, most forms of treatment are not evidence-based. Um, this is not just my opinion. This is, you know, by large reviews by CASA and other people. The majority of treatments are are not going to address underlying issues. They're not going to take people that whole distance and leaves them sort of white knuckling it through mm-hmm. just with superficial sorts of ideas and answers. Uh, so I wanted to put together all the therapeutic strategies rolled into one model that's really seamless for anyone to access. So um, so that's what the program does is it makes it easier to access that and what they're accessing really takes people the distance to more fully heal. And, and then the other neat thing about it is that um, you, you can do sort of what you need to do with it rather than showing up and you've got your walls up and you're still trying to appear um, like, like a good, well put together person, mm-hmm. even to your therapist. Um, with this, there's no there's no walls or facades needed. Right? Right. It's just you and yourself. And then some people think, well, but don't I need to be held accountable? And you know, I don't I don't think I'm gonna you know really try very hard if nobody else is asking you know w- what I answered or what that lesson was for me. And it's the opposite. What we see happen in the program that I'm really excited by is that. Um, people are doing it for themselves, mm-hmm. right? So when we are talking about the intervention, you know, you you end up sort of doing things for other people and you're doing a lot of people pleasing. You're trying to satisfy, you're trying to achieve. Um, with this, it's, it's just you and your own life. So people kind of get that very quickly with it as they enter it and they say, wow, these questions that I'm answering are just for me. Right, right. So you're not, not only, having you know, to 
like you said, you're not having to put on any kind of thing for someone else. Even right. even if it is a therapist where you might think like, oh, I can be more open, but you're still, mm-hmm. it really does take that wall away. Yeah. You know, you're self-accountable. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like the reverse psychology of, you know, if you, you know, tell an adult, you know, you know, all these things they need to do, you need to eat this and that to stay healthy, then you know, they might oblige or they might do it with a bit of resentfulness or it might not stay. But if you just kind of leave it to them and say, hey, um, you know, you're on your own, you know, here here are some tools to discover what healthy foods are if you'd like. Then they're like, oh, well, I do want to be healthy. I, I, I do want to have a little more energy. I want to sleep better. I want to live a longer life. Um, and then they look into it and then they say, oh, here's what I should eat. You know, mm. and so it's the same thing. You know, you, you turn the tables and mm-hmm. say, well, it's your life. You know, I, I, I don't need you to get better. I want you to get better. I don't need you to get better. D- do you? You know, do you need yourself to get better? And so people are doing it for themselves. Um, and, and they're not even necessarily going through it alone either. That's another um, thing. Sometimes people get a little backwards. They say, well, I'm going to go to rehab or I'm going to go to, you know, 12 step or AA meetings and go through it with a lot of people. Um, we, we should always be going through life with support and people, right? So, so the program is absolutely not meant to replace human connection. It's meant to do just the opposite, um, foster healthy relationships. So instead of just hanging out with your buddy who's trying to get sober as well, just because he's trying to get sober, um, well, it's also very good to form healthy connections with people who may have a lot or no experience with any addiction. Mm. So, um, so there's a lot in there that helps guide people towards forming healthy relationships um, and connecting, you know, in in healthy ways. Um, whether that's family or close people, but also you know people outside of your family circle. So there's a lot of exercises and things like that that go through identifying certain kinds of mentors um, and figuring out how to engage with people in those ways. And, and then also, rather than going through your own personal private treatment and then sharing that with, say, a spouse or family member, um, this is something you can actually go through and share with them. So there's some lessons in there where you're actually instructed to bring in someone that's close to you. But, um, but you can also go through, I mean, I have people who will wake up with their significant other and go through it together. So you can absolutely involve actually, you know, as many people as you'd like. But the, the idea is the person's in control. Mm-hmm. So if you want it all to be private, you can. But um, but if but if you want to include people, it's it's easier than having to retell what happened in a session. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just sounds very kind of almost empowering for for the person that's going to be using it, mm-hmm. which is yeah, which is really awesome. I mean, that's that's really great. And so how long have how long have you kind of like how long ago I guess did you did you start it? Uh, I I took a good couple years to put the curriculum together because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to make it not just evidence based but but really be intuitive, seamless, and and highly effective. So um, so that took a little while, and now it's been live for shy of a couple years. So um, so it's been up and operational. Awesome! Wow, we've and got ha- a lot of people it been going it pretty well. Yes, very very. Um, the the results we're getting are extremely good. Um, I I of course was hoping for that, and I thought you know maybe. This curriculum could do that, but um, to see it happen is extremely exciting and rewarding. And I and I think a lot of it isn't just to do with the fact that you know it's it's convenient. Um, the convenience alone doesn't necessarily make it more effective. 
although people maybe comply with it more. Um, and and I, I don't even know that it's all just that it's evidence-based and science-based techniques, but I think a lot of it is that people are just doing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you turn the table around, it's like reverse psychology. You know, it's like, you know, you, um, you, you're taking all the little rewards and other sort of punishments and things away and, and you're just leaving it up to that person. And most people, when they're left with that, decide to be healthier and want to be more fulfilled, want to be, you know, uh, just just a more joyful, uh, happy, connected person. Mm-hmm. So that's all the program is doing, right? It's addressing a lot of the underlying issues and um, and so I, I think that's why it's been really effective and, and why it's working well is because it addresses the right things, but it also sets the environment up where people are just doing it for mm-hmm. themselves. You're not doing it for anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's super. I mean, that's awesome. And it's cool that you've been able to kind of see all these great results. And do you, are you adding to it? Do you, do you plan on adding updates or how does that work? Yeah, um, so we've already got a community in there, and and there are um, two groups per week, and and they're as anonymous as people would like, mm-hmm. in keeping with what I wanted to offer. Um, but yeah, you know, there's plans to build it out much more. Um, we've already built out other sorts of programs in there as well. So mm-hmm. what I was referring to would be this full course, um, but there's also we've developed now a toolbox, which is sort of a briefer version of that. Um, we've got a six day challenge that's uh, a real easy thing for people to just get acquainted mm-hmm. with this sort of model that I use and, and challenge themselves over a short period of time. Um, and then there's a toolbox for friends and family. There's a toolbox for providers. So um, we've developed other things that we've seen, you know, as people go through it in the full program, we've seen these other needs come up of um, other community members or people in their lives wanting to, to understand it as well. Um, but yeah, we've got some other things in, in the pipeline to develop. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's cool that you're able to kind of, it just keeps growing. And as new things come up or you learn new things about what people might need, you're able to address them and add, add these new courses, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's reassuring for people because since it's online, I mean, we've got people from all over the world Mm -hmm. joining and, and they know that, you know, if you instead of like going away to a treatment or you have a, a therapist and they at some point go away, um, this is something people can keep. Mm-hmm. So they go back and I've got, you know, people and I encourage this, you know, they'll ask for their course to be reset and they'll go back through it again. You know, just like a, a, a movie or a book where mm-hmm. you just you want to get more and more out of it each time. Um, so people are seeing and using it in that way, which is really nice to see. And um, but yeah, it's it's something people can come back to. It's more like, you know, this is yours. This mm-hmm. is your journey and it's, it's your journey to keep. It, it wasn't just this experience that came and left. And and I hope you remember, you know, the most important bits. It's it's there for you. You know, you go through video lessons, but you're also going and sort of journaling. There's mm-hmm. reflections everywhere in there. So you're reflecting on what you're learning and incorporating and putting to action what you learn. And you get to go back and look at, you know, things that you've written or go and modify or add to it. So there's just this ongoing evolution. Um, and so that, that's a neat thing, too, as far as just that community aspect. You know, people are using it that way. There's forums in there mm-hmm. as well. So um, it's something people know is there for them, you know, for, forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. And like you said, it's great that 
it opens that door basically to people all around the world, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's awesome. And they, they can take it with them essentially. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, but yeah. And so Daniel, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. I, I really appreciate it. And getting to talk to you about all this was really, really interesting. And I, I think a lot of people are going to gain a lot from it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I also just love trying to spread sort of proper ways of thinking about things. And so I really appreciate that chance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And hopefully if if you're ever willing, I'd love to have you back on because I mean, I, there's so many more things I think that you could really help shed some important light on. And it was, you know, it was a great conversation. So I'd love to have you back on if you're ever interested again. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And then so so your website was selfrecovery.org. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned maybe we can we can put a little link down for, for a code for people to use if they're interested in using um, using the website. Yeah. Yeah. What we'll do, we can set up a, a coupon code so people can get 10 percent off. Awesome. A- any of the courses that they would want on there. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, we'll put that down in the down in the links, mm-hmm. and we'll put all of your other information so people can learn more about you. Is there any anywhere else people should go um, if they're interested in learning more about you or finding you online anywhere or on um, social media or any of that stuff? No, I'm not huge on <laughs> social media as much as I'm online with the program. Um, I don't have my own Facebook account. There's a Facebook for self recovery. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to like and and follow, but. Um, at, at this point, actually, I'm, uh, I, I don't engage much with social media, so you're not going to find me on <laughs> Twitter, never had, uh, that or, or Pinterest or, or anything. So, okay, yeah. cool. Well, yeah, selfrecovery.org. Then. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again, Daniel. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Wellness Plus Podcast. Copyright 2018. Target Public Media, LLC. All rights reserved.